would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John, we're going to be looking at the middle part of chapter 4. If you're not quite sure where 1 John is in your Bibles, you, there, the page is referenced for you in the bulletin for the red Bibles and the chairs around you. Or if you want to open your own Bible and turn to the very back and go left a little bit, you'll eventually come to 1 John before too long. It's one of the last books of the Bible. We are in the middle of a series looking at these three letters that the Apostle John wrote, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And uh, we're kind of in the middle of that. We're at 1 John chapter 4, looking at verses 7 through 12 today. Just a quick snapshot of where we are going. We will be finishing uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John probably sometime close to March. And then the plan from March until May is to uh, look into and study the book of Jonah from the Old Testament. Uh, I'm not sure what we'll be doing after that yet, but Jonah will take us up until uh, the summertime. Uh, we'll have some Uh, Lord willing, some guest preachers in there as well. Uh, So that'll be kind of where we are and where we're going between now and uh, the beginning of summer. Today we're looking at 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 through 12. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you from 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to this portion of your word and we pray that you would help us to see our Savior Jesus. Remind us, Father, of the greatest love that has ever occurred. Remind us of Jesus' person and work in this life, in this world. And as we meditate on those things, Father, I pray that you would, through the work of your Spirit, move in our hearts to motivate us and to empower us to go out and to love as you've loved us. Would you do this, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Repetition, it's a powerful tool. Repetition, it is a powerful tool. Mark Twain knew something about that. He wrote in his autobiography these words. Repetition is a mighty power in the domain of humor. If frequently used, nearly Any precisely worded and unchanged formula will eventually compel laughter if it be gravely and earnestly repeated again and again. Twain knew the truth of that statement because he had experienced it himself. In fact, he actually did a little experiment uh, proving that it was uh, that way in real life. On his first lecture tour in the United States, he started in kind of a risky way. 
He started with a boring and unfunny story and told it in a very level, monotonous voice. The first time he told the story, it was met with dead silence. 1,500 people stared back at him with looks of confusion and pity. Twain took a long pause and then made himself look like he was embarrassed. And then he told the same story in exactly the same way a second time. Once again, it was met with looks of confusion and people who just looked like they were sorry for him. He told the exact same story in the exact same way a third time, but that time the reaction was different. Twain recalled, all of a sudden, the front row recognized the joke of it and broke into a laugh. It spread back and back and back to the furthest verge of the place, then swept forward again and then back again. And at the end of a minute, the laughter was as universal and as thunderously noisy as a tempest. Forty, Forty years later, Twain wrote about that moment, saying that it was a heavenly sound to me, a triumph of art. Repetition. It can be a powerful Tool. It can be a powerful art to produce results. In Twain's case, great laughter. But repetition can be a powerful tool for us as well in other ways. It can cause us to understand something that is important that is being said again and again. Or it can help us to remember something that is important that we not forget. The Apostle John was a master of repetition. He comes back over and over again to several central themes in his letter. And today we're coming to a passage where John is repeating himself. Something that he has hit on already earlier in his letters. God is love. And because he has loved us with the greatest love that there has ever been, we must love God one another. That's been a theme that has come across in his letter already in chapter 2 and uh, early in chapter 3. And we've seen it also toward the end of chapter 3 in verses 11 and following. And now John is coming back to that theme in verses chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Really, all the way to the end of chapter 4. God loves his people. And that must do something in us. To make us love each other. John's point in these six verses is very clear. And his admonition to us is very pointed. So let's look today at three things. First of all, what he says about the requirement of love. And then secondly, what he tells us about the demonstration of that love. And then lastly, let's consider the practice of love. So first of all, the requirement of of love. John starts out this section, verses 7 through 12, with a command. Beloved, he says, let us love one another. Now, often in the Bible, when we, have, we come to a command, it's often in the second person. You do this, you do that. And it's often an imperative verb. This is neither of those. It's not an imperative, and it's not in the second person, it's in the first person. He says, beloved, let us love one another. You think about many of the commandments in the New Testament to love. Love your enemies. You love your enemies. You love your wives. You love one another. 
But John here is using a very unique structure in the Greek language to call his readers to do something by using the first person plural. Let us love. And when he wrote it in this way, his first century readers would have known very clearly that John was giving them a command. He starts this passage with the requirement. We must love one another. And did you notice that he tells them why that is the case? There are at least three reasons why John says that we are to love one another. One of them is in the end of verse 7 and the end of verse 8. He says one part of it is that God is love and that love originates with God. J.I. Packer, as he reflected on this idea that God is love, said it is one of the most tremendous utterances in the entirety of the Bible. It is more, John is saying more to us than God loves us. He is saying that God is love. God not only does things that show us his love, he is love. His very essence is love. His very being is love. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally loved each other because it is their very essence. It is the very character of God. And so that means that everything that God does is loving. Everything that God does has been done in love and is done for love's sake. And not only is God love... But he says, love comes from him. Love originates from God. Since it is his essence, since he is eternal, true love starts with God. That's one reason why we are required then to love one another. God is love. Love comes from him. He gives us another reason at the end of verse 7. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and... Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, John is here not saying that just by loving somebody, that person is a Christian. Some people might try to read it that way, but that's not what John is saying here. He's not saying that just loving someone makes you a Christian. After all, we know that there are many people who do not believe in God, people who believe that there is no God, who are certainly capable of loving. But what John is talking about here is a deep love that is directed specifically by Christians to other Christians. And he says that when Christians love that way, it shows that they are born of God. That's why it's a requirement, because it's evidence of the fact that we are born of God. There's a third reason here. It's kind of the same reason of the second one, although he puts it in the negative in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. For a Christian to not love shows that they don't know God. God is love. And for the Christian to love is a requirement because to not love reveals that that person doesn't really even know God. John Stott said, love is as much a sign of Christian authenticity as is love. Righteousness. 
Now think about that for a second. Uh, We talk about the fact that one way that we can know that we are Christians, one of the ways that we can have assurance uh, of being a Christian is that we can look and see the fruit of righteousness in our lives. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that we look for a sense of, uh, of, of genuineness of our faith, that we see fruit of righteousness. And what John Stott is saying is here uh, in, 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 with this quote is he's saying that, Love is just as much an evidence of genuine faith as the fruit of righteousness. It's a requirement. It is a command. And that's how John starts this passage. Christians must love. This is not just a suggestion. It's not just a good thing to do. It is a commandment. It is a requirement because God is love. It is his very essence and character. Love comes from him. And by loving, we show that we are born of him. It is evidence of a true faith. That's the requirement. That's the commandment. But I want you to notice that John doesn't just give us the requirement. He doesn't just give us the commandment. In order to drive it home, he says... Look at how it's been demonstrated. You see what he says there in verses 9 and 10? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not only does he give us the requirement, he gives us the demonstration of that love. We have a concrete, tangible, relatable, perfect demonstration of what love is and what it looks like. God sent his only son into the world. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 9. Love, the love of God was made manifest. That word there in the Greek to make manifest is often used to talk about something that in the past was hidden, not completely understood, but has now been revealed. You see what he's saying here. God's love has existed eternally because God is love and God is eternal. But it has not been fully seen and understood until Jesus came into the world. We can look in the Old Testament and see lots of places where we see God's love. But it has not been fully and finally revealed until the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in the beginning of verse 10. This is something that was initiated by God. This is not something that we started. It is something that he started. God's love is nothing that we deserve. It is nothing that we can earn. It's nothing that we can demand because of anything that we have done. We didn't love God first. He loved us first. It takes us back earlier in our service to the passage from Romans 5 where Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were sinners, when we were enemies with God, we were alienated from God. God initiated by loving us first. So we have a God-initiated manifestation, demonstration of his love. And what was it that John says? It has been demonstrated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Did you notice here twice in verses 9 and 10, he references Jesus as God's son. He's a person. God's only son, 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was truly a man. He was a person. And God was willing to send His own and only Son, Jesus, into this world to endure such hardship and hatred and even death for us. He was willing to sacrifice something so important, so precious, so personal for us. The one who is love came into this world to show us what true love is. But it's not just the person of Christ. It is demonstrated not just in the person of Jesus as the Son of God, but also in the work of Jesus. At the end of verse 10, John says, God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's that big theological word that we saw back in chapter 2. The word propitiation. It's a technical theological term that meant to turn away wrath. To turn away judgment. John is speaking specifically about Jesus' work on the cross. His sacrificial death. That because Jesus lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his Father, he was able to then die the death that we deserve to die in our place. That on the cross, Jesus received the holy and eternal wrath and judgment of God poured out onto himself so that his people would never have to experience it. That on the cross, Jesus experienced being forsaken by God so that we would never know what that is like. This is the greatest demonstration of what True love is the greatest example, the greatest picture, the greatest experience of true love. The gospel of God's grace to us through the birth, life, death, resurrection of his only son and our savior, Jesus Christ. The question for you today is, do you know this love? Have you experienced this love? Do you believe in this love for yourself? There is no greater love. There is no better love. There's no greater love that can satisfy our souls and bring peace to our hearts. Do you know it? Because brothers and sisters in Christ, if you say that you know this love, you've experienced this love, you believe in this love, then you need to understand that there's a consequence. John says that if if you know that love, there is a necessary result that must come in your life. There is something that must follow. And that's where we begin to see the practice of love. We see it in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, he says. If God has so loved us, and He has, and He is, and He will, then He says we ought to love one another. That that little word, that little Greek word for ought, is the word that comes from the verb to be obligated. You see, it's a little stronger than how we think of when we say, well, I ought to go do something. We think that that means that would be a good thing for me to do. It would be a wise thing for me to do. I probably should do that. But the word that John is using here is stronger. It is to be obligated. 
He's saying that if God has loved us, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are obligated to love one another. It is the very basis for John starting this section with the command. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. You are the beloved of the Almighty God. You are the ones who have been loved by God from before the foundation of the world. And it has been demonstrated to you through Jesus' life and death on the cross. And as a result of being God's beloved, you are obligated. You are commanded by God Himself to love one another. It's not optional. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. It's not just when we feel like it. It's not just with people that we like. And I want you to again go back to verse 11. There's a sense that John is saying something fairly profound here to us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's a sense in what John is saying in these verses. Is that if God has loved us, and He has, and He will be, then we are obligated to love in a similar way. That's the sense of what John is saying here. That is, that our love for each other should be modeled on and should look like God's love for us. So here's where it starts to get very practical as well as very challenging. What does God's love look like to us? And therefore, what should our love look like toward one another? Now, before we jump into some of these principles that I'm going to share with you, let me just make a quick aside before we dive in. It's clear that John is speaking here in this passage and in several other passages in his letter about Christians loving other Christians. He talks about loving the brothers, laying down your life for the brothers, loving one another, the other people that would have been reading the letters that John was uh, sending. And so here John is specifically talking about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think we can also apply this to loving our neighbors and even loving our enemies because those are commands from Scripture as well. So how has God loved us? Well, God's love to us is, first of all, active. We talked about that already earlier. We didn't initiate it. God initiated loving us. God moved first. He loved us first and he didn't wait on us to love him before he loved us. So, we should love one another first. We shouldn't wait to initiate love toward others. We don't wait on them to express love to us in some way before we love them. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies with God, He loved us first. And so we must initiate. We must love each other. Even those that we don't know very well. Even those that we don't like very well. Even those that are not like us. Even those that we might consider sinners. God's love to us is active. Secondly, God's love to us was sacrificial. The love of God for us was costly. It was infinitely costly. It was the death of His own and His only Son. And it wasn't just any kind of death. It was a propitiating death. It was the death of Jesus taking on the wrath of God and turning it away from us. 
So, the love that we're called to have for each other must be a sacrificial love. It might cost us at times. The love that we have for each other must be the opposite of selfish. It must be the denial of ourselves and for the benefit of others. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't he deny himself on the cross? Didn't he give himself for the benefit of others, for us? That means that there will be times when we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ that may mean we have to give up things for them, for their benefit and for their enjoyment. It means that we are called to deny ourselves, maybe even of things that we think we deserve or have rights to, for the sake of them. We're called to a sacrificial and costly love. God's love to us is active, it's sacrificial. Thirdly, God's love to us is completely free. That's why we call it grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve to get. God's love to us is completely free. It is without costs. It reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Or perhaps Paul's interpretation of that passage in Ephesians 2 where he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God although God's love was costly it didn't cost us anything we get it as a gift we get it freely without a price so our love for each other must be free. It must be without cost, without some result being demanded or expected. Our love for each other must not be conditioned on something that we're going to get in return, even love. Our love for each other must be simply because we've experienced God's free, gracious love to us. God's love is active, it's sacrificial, it's free. Fourthly, God's love for us is persistent. God's love for us perseveres. It, it endures. It's not deterred. It doesn't fade or lessen. It is persistent. And so our love for each other must persist and must persevere. It must persist through trials and difficulties and arguments and disagreements through hard-to-like personalities and people that are not like us. It must persist through theological or political or socioeconomic differences. We don't get to stop loving each other because we have differences. Our love must persist and transcend those differences. After all, Aren't we thankful that God's love persists for us despite the many ways that we fail Him? 
God's love is active, it's sacrificial, it's free, it's persistent. And lastly, it's tangible. God's love for us is not just some vague feeling or some emotional expression. It is concrete, it is tangible, it is definable. It makes a real difference in our lives. God didn't just say to us, I love you, now believe it. It's not just a feeling that he has for us. His love had hands and feet, literally, in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. So our love for each other must be more than just a vague, undefinable feeling that we say that we have for each other. Our love for each other should be seen and not just heard in word and deed. We have just come through a season where we have remembered and celebrated the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That was the incarnation of love. And as God's people, we now are called to go out and to love incarnationally our brothers and sisters in Christ with hands and with feet. Whether that is materially in some way, financially, the alleviating of burdens, or even just being a faithful presence with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to notice in verse 12, John says essentially this, that although God can't be seen, when we love each other this way, the world sees God. When we tangibly love each other, there is outreach happening. There is a defense of the faith that we say that we believe. There is evidence for the reality of God. When we love each other in all of these ways, God's love, John says, is perfected in us. It is brought to its intended purpose. And people get a glimpse of the truth and the grace of the Lord God Almighty. Now, we could go on and on and on talking about the qualities of God's love, these, these principles of God's love, being active, sacrificial, free, persistent, and tangible. And we could continue on and on. And I realize all we're talking about here are the principles. We have to take these principles and then apply them into the very practical day-to-day aspects of our lives. But even just as we reflect for a few moments on these principles, we can start to feel the weight of them. I mean, who could actually do this? How can we actually love others the way that God has loved us? So let me finish with a fairly well-known story that hopefully will help us to have a sense of how we can actually do it. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. Zamperini was born in 1917 and he took up running in high school. He eventually qualified for the 1936 Olympics in Berlin running the 5,000-meter race. He, he finished in eighth place, but he actually uh, set a new one-lap record for the speed. In 1941, he was commissioned as a lieutenant in the United States Air Force. He served as a bombardier in B-24 planes in the Pacific. And on May 27, 1943, he and a crew of 10 others were on a search-and-rescue mission over the Pacific Ocean. His plane had mechanical difficulties, and they crashed into the ocean. Eight of the 11 crew members were killed. Zamperini and two others spent 33 days drifting in the ocean with very little food and water. One of the survivors, Francis McNamara, died on day 33, and then Zamperini and another survivor, Russell Phillip, drifted another 14 days. On day 47, they landed 
on the Marshall Islands, and immediately they were taken prisoner by the Japanese Navy. Zamperini was held in captivity. He was beaten severely. He was mistreated. He was tortured until he was finally released at the end of World War II. He was moved around during his time of imprisonment to various prisoner of war camps, and eventually he came to a camp of a particularly ruthless leader who had the nickname The Bird. Zamperini experienced some of the most ruthless and horrible treatment from The Bird. When the war ended, Zamperini was released and he was taken back to the United States, and for years... He had horrible nightmares of all that he had endured and experienced. He began drinking heavily to try to numb and to forget what he had gone through. 1949, Zamperini's wife convinced him to go with her to a Billy Graham crusade. And while he was there, he heard the good news of the gospel of God's grace and love. And he committed his life to Christ. In a sense, Graham kind of took him under his wing after that and helped him to create a ministry of evangelism and outreach where he would regularly share his story and his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He even went back and visited many of the guards from his prisoner of war camps that he was held under. Many of those guards then in prison and he would make a point to meet with them face to face and tell them that he forgave them. Expressing his love for them. And to tell them that the reason why he was able to forgive them was because he had experienced the forgiveness and the love of a perfectly holy God. Some of the guards, it said, actually became Christians as a result of those conversations. Just before his 81st birthday, Zamperini was in Nagano, Japan for the 1998 Winter Olympics. Ended up that he wasn't that far away from the last POW camp where he was held, where the bird ruled over him so ruthlessly. And he tracked him down. Somehow the bird had evaded prosecution after the war, but the man was unwilling to meet with Zamperini. So Zamperini wrote wrote the man a letter, and he explained how he forgave him. He explained how he loved him in spite of everything that he had done to Zamperini. He went on in the letter to explain the reason why he loved and forgave him. It was because Zamperini says, I have experienced the forgiveness of a sovereign and holy God. I have experienced the love of God. I've experienced the forgiveness of my sins. And as a result, I've been moved. I've been empowered to forgive you, and even to love you. It's said that it's unknown whether the bird actually read that letter. He never responded, and he died in 2003. Zamperini faithfully served the Lord and proclaimed his forgiveness and his love until he died in 2014 at the age of 97. Now, I ask you, what could make a man like Zamperini respond that way? A man who had experienced incredible cruelty and hate and torture to actually travel back to the places of that horrible, uh, the horrible memories and to actually meet with the men who inflicted such things to him face to face and to not only forgive them, but to express his love for them. What could do that? 
there's only one thing. It is experiencing the love of our Father in heaven, Almighty God, that has been seen in the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Zamperini had been grabbed by the love of the one who is the very essence of love. And when that happened, everything changed for him. He was motivated, he was empowered to go out and love others, even those that he had once hated. That's the power of the gospel. The power of God's active, sacrificial, free, persistent, and tangible love to us in the propitiating death of Jesus Christ. And the question is, do you know it? Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? Because those of you that say that you have, you are called to go out and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and your neighbors and to love them in the way that your heavenly father has loved you. And the only way that you'll be able to be motivated and empowered to do it is if we never stop learning about the depth and the breadth and the height of God's love for us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we often pray that we believe, help our unbelief. And so today we would pray, we love, help us in the ways that we are unloving. I pray, Father, that you would give us a thirst to never stop plummeting the depths of your grace and love to us. And that as we do that, Father, for the totality of our lives, that you would use it through the work of your spirit as a means of motivating us and giving us the power to actually love others as you have loved us. Would you please do this for we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.